you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, the epistle to Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I believe that's on page 1001 in your pew Bible. We're in the early part of a study of this book that might last longer than a year. We're going very slowly at the beginning. Tonight is the third night. We'll read verses 1 to 4, though we've been picking at different parts of it. Tonight our emphasis is on verses 3 and 4. What is Hebrews about? It is about the supremacy of Jesus over anyone and anything. It is about the sufficiency of Jesus for every need of your soul. And it is about then the necessity of holding on in faith to Jesus. Let me invite you to consider him this evening. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be our teacher tonight. Send us your spirit. Speak to our hearts. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. When my 11-month-old son, William, has found a pencil, well, you don't want him to poke his eye out, so what do you do? Well, you offer him, of course, the iPhone. His eyes widen. His pulse races. He coos. Why? He's thinking, I can post selfies on Instagram. I can call that cute girl from the church nursery. Why, I can Google map my way to world domination over the course of my life. No, he's not thinking any of that, but... But the body language is fascinating. And of course, what does he do? He drops the pencil in favor of the iPhone. It's what Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish pastor who had no inkling of an iPhone, of course. It's what he called in a sermon titled, yes, this is it, the expulsive power of a new affection. This is why I don't title my sermons. In it, he points out how we never, never lose our hold on one love until a new love comes along. He says the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. Our hearts can be drawn from one affection to another. And sometimes it takes that new one to get rid of that old one as anyone with a crush perhaps has experienced where it took a new crush to drive out the old. Well, we all have things we hold onto in our hearts that we love most deeply and that we will never let go of. 
because we long to cling on to something. This is why John Calvin said our hearts are like idol factories. We will worship something. We will love something. And until a new, more beautiful, more believable love comes along, we will inevitably cling to idols, to cling to the wrong kinds of loves. And so here's the message of Hebrews. This is why I raise it. To people, as they were, tempted to turn from Jesus to idols, to turn back from Jesus to the old ways of Judaism, or to abandon Jesus for the sake of the approval of friends, or to part with Jesus on account of pressure and persecution. He says, Jesus is infinitely better and more beautiful than any false God. Look at him, he says, and other loves will fade. And so what he does is he shows them Jesus. He holds Jesus up like a great, perfectly, ideally cut diamond with all the facets brilliantly sparkling so that we will be enamored with him. He spoke of who Jesus is as the Son, who reveals the Father, who Jesus is in five parts. And then we looked at those last week, and I'll remind you of them. And then, and then he says what Jesus did, and we'll focus on that. But, but as we saw last week, five very quick things about Jesus. End of verse 2, he's what? He's the heir of all things. In the end, everything belongs to him. Everything is given to him. And we saw that if we are to have anything at all, we must get it from him. And he's willing to share. He delights to share with all who trust in him. In fact, the Bible says, if you believe in Jesus, you are a co-heir with Christ of all things. He's the heir of all things. Secondly, he said, he's the co-creator through him. God made all things. Did you catch that phrase? Seen and unseen, even the ages and even history. We didn't make ourselves. We aren't self-creators. He made us and he made us for himself. Thirdly, he said, he's not only those, but he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the outshining, the brilliance of God's glory. He puts God on display to the universe. He makes him known so that if you want to see God, if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And he's more than that. He's that because he is God. He's divine. Notice that phrase. He is the exact imprint of God's nature or God's essence or God's being. That which makes God, God. Jesus is that exactly. And fifthly, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the providential sustainer of all things, and he carries everything along towards his appointed end and goal. Our lives are in his hand. In him we live and move and have our being. And if you are in Jesus and in his hand, you are safe. He holds on to you and no one is stronger than him. We looked at all these things last time. Now he adds to it, and that's the focus of our attention this evening. In verses 3 and 4, he adds to this description of Jesus by focusing on his humiliation and his exaltation. His cross work and his ruling and reigning in heaven. And I want to highlight three things. So here's where we're headed. I want to highlight his work of humiliation. And I want to highlight 
his completion of his work and his exaltation. Those three things. In the first place, his work of humiliation. Look at the end of verse 3. He made purification for sins. End of verse 3. He completed the work of purification. This passage doesn't tell you how he does that. It just tells you that he did that and he finished it. Later, the book is going to be a lot about how he accomplished it. But notice that this stresses the cleansing of sin, the purifying of sin. I don't know if you love the Olympics or got to watch any of it or caught some of the Olympics or some of the outside story around the Olympics, but uh, there were at least three uh, things that happened that I think are good illustrations of the nature of sin. And I just want to point them out to you. The last is what he's getting at, but it might help to distinguish ways to look at sin. On the one hand, some people just didn't receive any medals. They didn't jump high enough. They didn't uh, run fast enough. They didn't swim strong enough. And they fell short of what undoubtedly was their ambition. They certainly fell short of the full attainment. They, they missed the target, which is the word here. They, they missed the bullseye. And some of us, some of you are troubled in your conscience because you know you fall short. You're always trying to measure up. You're always trying to do more to perfect yourself, to become that better self you think you've got to be to get God's approval. And your conscience condemns you because you know you aren't what you ought to be. Not in God's eyes. You don't even live up to your own standard. And your conscience is bruised Worn out, and Jesus comes along and he cleanses our conscience and he frees it by being all that God requires for us. All the perfection God has ever required of a human being, Jesus is that for us. He's all our righteousness, the Bible says. God is satisfied with Jesus, so God is satisfied with us in Jesus. Because we're clothed in him. But there's another way to look at sin. And sadly, we heard about it, of course, in the news uh, surrounding the athletes who vandalized, I think it was a gas station. They what? They broke the law. They transgressed where they ought not to have gone. First John 3 says sin is lawlessness. This is another way to look at sin. And some of us are troubled in our conscience because we know we've crossed lines we should not have crossed. We've stepped over boundaries into places we ought not have gone. And our conscience afflicts us for our transgressions. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus cleanses our conscience by being condemned for us. He satisfies the demands of the law. The law says, here is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. And he dies our death. And he bears God's wrath. He's condemned in our place that we might go free. That we might be pardoned in him. But there's a third way to look at sin. Sin isn't just falling short of God's glory. And it isn't just lawlessness. It is also pollution. Like that foul, you know where this is going. The foul, putrid water that the Olympic athletes feared to swim in. That many got sick in. That ocean bay into which the sewers of Rio emptied themselves. 
To drink it meant illness. To get splashed was to need a bath. And some of us are troubled in conscience because we just feel dirty. And we know we stink. And we can't imagine a beautiful deity in the perfection of heaven ever welcoming one like us so stained by the pollution of sin. And the Bible says, and here pointedly, Jesus provided purification for sin. Trust Him and your stink doesn't rise to heaven. Your stink was on Jesus on the cross and it is gone forevermore. And the stain of your sin. You remember Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth? She goaded her husband into committing murder to take the throne. But under the guilt of it, dwelling on it, she just... Looking at those hands stained with blood, though not to the human eye, she'd washed them, but she said, out, damn spot, out, right? Hell is murky, she said, all the perfumes of the world can't sweeten this hand. She knows she reeks. She's stained by her guilt. And Macbeth, her husband, turns to the doctors and said, oh, can't you not pluck? From the memory, a rooted sorrow with some sweet oblivious antidote. Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs down her heart. You hear what he's crying? Oh, isn't there some antidote? Can't you do something? Cleanse the conscience. Take away the weight of the stain and the guilt. But in the end, at least in that story... She's kind of turned mad by it and suicidal. Some of us are turned mad in efforts to purify ourselves too. John Piper notes the futile ways we try to deal with our own defilement. He says this, we can cut ourselves or throw our children in the sacred river. Or give a million dollars to United Way. Or serve in a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. Or perform a hundred forms of penance and self-injury. And the result will be the same. The stain remains. What comes out of us defiles us. We are defiled by pride, self-pity, bitterness, lust, envy, jealousy, covetousness, apathy, fear, and the actions they breed. There's no life in that. We need Macbeth's sweet, oblivious antidote. And in the gospel, you have that antidote. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He is our hope. When our conscience condemns us, take your conscience to him. When you see Him, it will change you. How? There's an example of this in the life of a prostitute in Luke chapter 7. And if you want to turn there, you may. You may just want to listen in on the story. At Luke chapter 7, beginning of verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked to eat with Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. And behold, it says, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. 
and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. You see what he's saying? She's dirty. And if you, Jesus, really represented God, you'd avoid her like the plague. But of course, Jesus didn't avoid her. And he let himself be touched by her. And now he's become socially unclean for her. They don't think well of him at all. And then Jesus explains her actions and his actions by telling a story. He says, I've got a story to tell. Well, tell it. The man says, all right. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me the water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now you see what she did. She took the tools of her trade and put them to a new use. With her lips, she kissed his feet. With her hair, no doubt a part of a prostitute's attraction, she wiped his feet. With the perfume she used to allure men, she anointed Jesus' feet. Why? Well, she was a big debtor and she knew it. And she knew in Jesus it had been freed. She had been freed. So Jesus concludes the story, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now look, his point isn't that her love purchased his forgiveness. That's not his point at all. It is that being forgiven much moves her to love Jesus much. And the one who loves Jesus little has no idea of the kind of debt that he has pardoned. And the one who loves him not at all has yet to enjoy that freedom. In Jesus, she met a different kind of man, found a new love, And so she offered the tools of her trade to Jesus to be used for righteous purposes. And the writer of Hebrews here is saying to us, let me remind you, dear Christian, why you love Jesus. He took away the filth of your sin. Now don't go serving other gods. Give your service to him. 
That's why he's showing you Jesus this way. And that's the first thing. And the second is the work of completion. Not only the work of humiliation, the work of completion. After making purification for sin, it says what? He sat down. It means his work is completed. He isn't still making purification after he made purification. His work is over. He finished what he started. It is finished, he said, upon the cross. You know, Jesus here is is the priest for us as well as the sacrifice. And do you know that in the old temple and in the old tabernacle, there was no furniture upon which to sit. There was no chair or stool for the priest because they were forbidden to sit. They offered sacrifices morning and evening, day after day, and the work was never done because it was never finally effective for removing the pollution of sin. But Christ, it says, as our priest, sat down when he was done because his work is forever effective and once and for all. That's the idea that comes up again and again in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. Hebrews 7, 26 puts it this way, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so our salvation does not depend upon us. It depends upon him. And it does not depend upon our continuing works on his behalf. It depends upon his completed work for us. And because he sat down, you can sit down too. You know that there was nobody who worked harder in the early church, outside of Jesus, of course, than the Apostle Paul. He even remarks upon it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in all humility, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. So he gives credit where credit is due. But Paul didn't put his confidence in his labors serving Jesus. Serving God. He said, Philippians 3, I've got tons of things to boast about. I've got more to boast about than anybody. Philippians 3. If anybody has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents got it right even before I knew what was going on. I am, he says, of the people of Israel by birth. I was born into the people of God. I am, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. People know who my ancestors are. We're an important tribe. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. We keep the culture I studied under the best scholars in Judaism. We might say, I went to the best Christian schools. And he says, that counts for nothing. In fact, he goes on to say, and how did I live? Hebrew, or Philippians 3 verse 5, as to the law as a Pharisee. You know, if I found a dime on the road, I tithed a penny. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. I could not wait to get my hands on people who were wrong. 
And as to righteousness under the law, it was blameless, he says. In other words, not that he was sinless, but you could examine his life and there was no scandalous sin whatsoever. He could stand up under your inspection. He could do all that. And what did Paul think of all that before the face of God, having heard about Jesus and met Jesus? In Philippians 3, he goes on to say, Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. These were of no profit to me. In fact, they put me in debt, he says. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them, he says, as rubbish. In other words, I broke my back for the minutia of the law. And now it's just a pile of dung to me. Why? I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So I take all my good works and I pile them up and I run away from them to Jesus, to be found in Him, to have His perfection cover me, that I can be perfect before God in Him. Because His work is done, and my work is never done. There's an 18th century missionary to Native Americans named David Brainerd. And when he was 20, he wrote in his journal, when I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions. I spent much time every day reading my Bible, praying. I gave great attention to Sunday sermons. In short, I had a very good outside and trusted entirely in my religious duties, though I was not then aware of what I was doing wrong. Now, here was the problem, he says. The more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. And I saw that all my prayers and repentances and feelings and obediences had not laid the least obligation upon God to bestow his salvation on me. Then I realized why they were of no avail. When I had been fasting and praying and obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory, to feel I was worthy. I was doing nothing for God, but for me. And it was an exercise, he says, in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior in order to be my own Savior. And then he says at that time, the true way of salvation opened to to my mind, salvation not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ. Then I felt myself in a new world. That's Paul. That's David Brainerd. That's the Apostle Paul. That's Hebrews. Jesus' work is complete. He sat down. It is finished. You don't need to fret. That there is something more you must do or something he has overlooked. Something escaped his attention. You don't need to try to add anything to what he did for you. It is finished. So that you can have rest for your soul in him. That's the second thing. And the third one is this. His exaltation. Notice where he goes. Notice where he sat. He sat down, it says, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He went to the highest place of honor, the the seat of a throne 
where he is not just sitting but ruling. And there we have this king priest. He ascended on high to the place of power and authority. He sits above angels, it says. And we'll have more to say because he will about angels over the next two weeks. And so I'll pass by that. But just to note that he created the angels that's already established in his incarnation and becoming flesh like us. He came for a time a little bit lower than the angels. And after his cross work and in his resurrection, he was ascended and exalted back higher than the angels is what the writer is saying. There is nobody greater than him. Having made purification, he was exalted. Two applications. So no matter who tells you not to or how much pressure your family or your friends place upon you to not worship at the feet of Jesus The proper response to Jesus is to bow. And you are right, he is saying to the Hebrew hearers and to us. Don't go back. Don't walk away. There's nobody greater. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But don't just bow. Come to God through him. He's the prophet whom God has spoken his final word to us through. He's the priest whom God has accomplished the work of cleansing for our sins. And he is the king who sits enthroned in the place of honor. And there is no greater mediator between God and man than this God-man. Come to him. And he says, I will give you life. There's a wonderful story. If you like Lewis and the Narnia stories, there's a scene in which this little girl, Jill, is trying to get a drink by the river. And there's a problem. Aslan the lion is there by the river, and she's afraid of him. Are you thirsty? Said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might have well asked the whole mountain to move aside for her existence. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And he didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry. 
nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said Aslan. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, he said. And so it is with Jesus. There is no one bigger, no one better, no one more beautiful who can offer you nearly as much as he offers you. There is no other stream whereby you might be cleansed. No other drink that can give you eternal life but him. Just hold on to him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your son. Grant that we might have life in him, life everlasting. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.